Rudy, it is so great to have you back on the podcast, Psyche Podcast. And I am like beyond excited to kind of begin this ongoing series where we're going to be just exploring the thought of Eric Fromm, who I know you've kind of really dug deep into and, and you did your kind of doctoral dissertation on in part. I'm just kind of barely getting into him, but I'm like obsessing and he's just so good. And there's so much that I want to kind of talk to you about. But I guess before we begin, we'll, we'll just kind of throw out there that one of the texts we've been reading together is his book, Man for Himself, which I got to admit, I hated the title, <laughs> right, for, yeah. for a variety of reasons, but but I'm starting to understand exactly what he meant by it, and, and I'm becoming a little bit more okay with it. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, you know, he's still, he's still writing within the, uh, uh, this, I think it's like he, he's influenced by, you know, forms of existentialism and, and it, obviously the you can tell that his humanism is all over the book um and the way he's uh he's interpreting humanism is you know specifically uh clear to him right and there is like an existential element but he's not necessarily an existentialist which is kind of interesting so he always uh i always think about it as like from's the kind of thinker who like dips his toes but never identifies as any kind of uh, specific philosophical ism, right? That that has, uh, at least in his time, for example, you know, the existential movement was very big, and he didn't necessarily want to put himself within, you know, John Paul Sartre's movement or anything like that. He was kind of existential, but but deeply deeply humanist and and, and also like you know, socialist orientation in which he's coming from. And, yeah, uh, no, it's super interesting. I just read in one of the footnotes. Cause he uses the concept existential several times and he finally does a footnote where he says, I want to be clear that I'm yeah. not necessarily connecting myself to Jean-Paul Sartre, but he says, I haven't even read all of his stuff. So I don't know if we really are on the same page, but right. I appreciated his like humility because he didn't like really shit on him or say that we totally disagree. He's like, I haven't really read him at that time. And so yeah. he kind of just lays that out. I thought that was good. Yeah. I, I would yeah. argue too, that, I mean, he's clearly within the psychoanalytic tradition too. And I know he has some serious disagreements with Freud, but one of the things I really resonate with him is his understanding of the unconscious. You know, he's, he's big on, we can't just focus on people's conscious behavior. We've got to look into some of their unconscious feelings and motivations and drives. And so I think that's, that's a really helpful part of his thinking as well. Right. I, I for example, I, I had a friend of mine recently just sent me a, a, a an excerpt of uh, Marcuse with Habermas and and, and Herbert uh, Marcuse was part of the Frankfurt School and and uh, Habermas was you know I think he's third generation Frankfurt School now and uh, they were having a debate about Fromm and why he left the uh, the Frankfurt School and Fromm uh, sorry Marcuse basically told them that. Um, it was because of, uh, you know, like this, this, this uh, disagreement on his post-Freudianism. And that's, you know, that, that's why he kind of harped on him, this idea of like denying the instinctual drives like that. Yeah. Rosa Marcuse was really pissed off about it. From. <laughs> so that was kind of funny. But I mean, there's also personal issues, too, between him and, and, and from like sure. just between Marcuse and from. But um when it comes to the more academic, you know, intellectual ideas, I think uh, Marcuse deeply, deeply was skeptical from because of his denial of the instinctual drives that, you know, that Freud and, and Marcuse also embraced deeply. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. So, okay. Let, let, let me ask you this, just maybe as we kind of define a, a couple terms, what do you think he meant by humanism? Yeah. So Franz humanism is kind of interesting because okay. it's a part of how we understand, you know, uh, the, the, the enlightenment, right. It's a part of the enlightenment tradition, uh, his aspect of humanism. There is, uh, there is a sense of a, of a universal understanding of what it means to be human, right? Okay. Uh, and and there are there are there are essential right essential aspects of of what the human being and its component parts are, which I think uh, folks from a more you know post structural and postmodern anti foundational uh, orientations would. Uh, you know, would, 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 would feel irked by and, and maybe even feel some disgust. But sure. uh, the reality is, is that while Fromm comes from the, you know, the enlightenment form of, of, of the humanist tradition, uh, he, he's, he's also, he's also critical. And, 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 and what I think is cool about his radical humanism, like that's what he calls it, is that, you know, it might have, essentialisms and, and I and I, for example like someone like Kieran Durkin who's one of the more uh, more prominent from scholars uh, to this day who I've had conversations with and I've read his books um, he he makes the case that Fromm's humanism isn't just this cookie cutter you know like reified understanding of what we think humanism is but um, but actually a more like self-aware form of humanism, right? And, and that's and that's what he says that the the anti-humanist or the anti-foundationalist uh, discard or or don't take seriously about from or any kind of <laughs> so sorry, dude. Man. That was impressive. That's uh, that's a that's an impressive bark. Yeah, Zuko just saw a dog, so he <laughs> Zuko stop. <laughs> um what was I? I lost. I lost track of what I was saying. <laughs> no, no, no. You, you were talking about maybe one of the ways that he's critiqued is because of his uh, the way he maybe reifies human nature. Or right. I, I, I know for me, like one of the hesitations in in coming to want to read from was, I guess, in all of my reading and thinking, I've I've moved away from like essentialist understandings of things, and and maybe would see myself as a type of constructivist at some level. I, I actually see what you're saying. Like as I'm actually reading what he's actually getting into and the way that he nuances a lot of things, I don't think he's just like some old school essentialist that's trying to to just push some kind of yeah like like set in stone version of human nature in front of us. I think it's a lot more nuanced and radical, uh, just in the ways that you're describing. So I I really do resonate with with that with, with that more nuanced reading. Yeah. Um, yeah. His radical humanism talks about, you know, like the, the there, there's differentiations, right? Like we, he can talk about exploitation. He talks about the marginalization of, uh, of various groups and how they're affected by that and how their psychology gets, uh, gets influenced. Right. And also gets conditioned by. So it's, it's, it's not just like, you know, like all, all human beings have these, universal enlightenment you know yes he talks about reason like obviously reason is, a, is an interesting uh i would say universal aspect uh, he does of, he does talk a lot about reason doesn't he he does he does but at the same time he recognizes that 
Um, one cannot reason, right? If 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 one also does not have emotional stability, and I do think that he, you know, he makes this really interesting. Well, he navigates really well this idea of how reason isn't just intellect, but it's also a part of our emotional capability, right? It's Dude, not totally. just intellect, right? In fact, let me let me read this quote where I, where I think he completely gets into this. It's page 47, at least in my edition. He says, If man were only a disembodied intellect, his aim would be achieved by a comprehensive thought system. But since he is an entity endowed with a body as well as a mind, he has to react to the dichotomy of his existence, not only in thinking, but also in the process of living and his feelings and actions. And he goes on to kind of unpack that. So I think that's exactly mm-hmm. what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, and I think the way he presents, uh, the existential anthropology, if we can call it that of man or or of humanity in this case is, I think it's really interesting because he, he, it's all about contradictions and there's, you know, internal contradictions that exist from the moment we're born. And even, even, even before we're born, contradictions are in existence, right? Dude, um, and that's what that. we have to, yeah, that's what we have to grapple with, right? We have to, we have to tackle the 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 existential contradictions that exist, not not just with our own emotions, but also with our material existence too, right? It's a part of yes. It. So, okay, Rudy, I think where I want to go, just to kind of really like go deep into what you just said in terms of those yeah. existential like contradictions, is can you maybe explain? Because he gets he gets into it in this book and several others that I've looked at he kind of reinterprets like the creation story from the Torah or from the Old Testament in the kind of Christian yeah. tradition, right? The Adam and Eve kind of myth or saga, however we want to put that. He has a really interesting read of that, connects, connecting it to a kind of human evolutionary history as well. W- why don't you kind of tell us maybe what he was getting at there? Because I, I think it's going to help us understand this idea of like those existential contradictions. Well, I, I would say in this case, you're more of a theologian than I am. <laughs> But, well, at least when it comes to the, the story as it goes is, um, well, he, he subverts it, which I think is kind of interesting. And he, yeah. uh, what he does is that he, he, he explains that the, the curiosity of, of Adam and Eve isn't supposed to be something that should be punished. But instead, like, that's the moment that human beings first express their own individual autonomy, right? That, that's yes. when they, that's, that's when humanity uh, came to express freedom. Real freedom comes with risk. Right. And uh, yes. uh, the biting of the apple isn't necessarily about, you know, this uh, this 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 uh, this battle between good and evil. But there, there's this, you know, that he has a secular spiritual interpretation um, that he's basically saying the moment human beings picked from the apple was the moment that human beings became self-aware. Yes. Um, that's when they were laid bare in front of the overwhelming uh, awareness of their own freedom, which can yes. be scary. Yeah. Well, and, and, and what I'm picking up on, and, and again, maybe this is not quite fair to you because I like, literally just read this like this afternoon, but yeah. he, he grounds the very heart of this human existential contradiction you were talking about in the kind of creation story or, or a way of reading human evolution because he says, you know, in some ways, contra Freud and, and, and others like behavioralists or people that are just so stuck on biology that part of what makes humans unique and different is that we kind of emerged into a state of consciousness or what he ends up calling freedom, that we're Mm -hmm. not just nature 
like the other animals. We, we don't just follow instincts almost blindly. We right. can think about the future. We can imagine our death. We can have self-awareness. We can reflect on what we're actually doing. And while that's a wonderful thing, it's also a type of curse because it separates us from ourselves. It separates mm-hmm. us from others. It separates us from just nature. And so I guess his point is, you, you can't really be human without also being in this state of kind of separateness. In other words, freedom is also a type of like alienation separation. or a type of separate. Yeah. yeah, it's a type of separation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, man, I have so many thoughts, but dude, go down the rabbit trail. Yeah, this this would be a you know a, a good moment just to reference the you know this is this is where from kind of like cross contacts with. You know the Zen Buddhists and 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 and, mm. and Taoist and Taoist thinkers and and folks like you know like uh, Alan Watts for example um, who talk about uh, you know how like human beings are actually nature just coming come becoming aware of itself right I love that uh, yeah and that and that's the someone like uh, you know someone else who I really really appreciate who's problematic in their own sense but. I think agrees with from here is, is who's also a psychoanalyst is uh, Norman O. Brown, okay. and, and and his book Life Against Death. That's the book that he wrote uh, in the 1950s, and in there he actually talks about how uh, you know human beings, which I I would believe you know from would totally agree with human beings creating culture is actually a super biological development. That's what he calls mm. it. And basically, we like, we we've, we've biologically developed culture. And with our culture, we've we've moved away from instinctual, you know, I wouldn't say drives, but our instinctual necessity, right? And yeah, and we and we've turned culture into the new necessity, right? Mm. And in, and in that sense, there's this like there's this dialectical play that happens with culture where, yes, we might come into the world being influenced by the environment in which we're in, but we can also change that environment, and at the same time, simultaneously change ourselves mm. which is what Tom is definitely talking about a man for himself yeah, yeah. oh gosh that's so good yeah. man yeah now, now i want to go down a, a variety of different <laughs> paths but yeah. I, I i guess one of the things that 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 i wanted to explore that kind of connects to all this is especially as we think about these these existential contradictions that, that humans have to kind of i mean regardless of the historical circumstances that's one of his arguments in the book is to be human Actually, to be human, what kind of connects us is this state of existential contradiction where we're free and we have this consciousness, but that means that we're separate from others, even separate internally from ourselves and separate from nature. He ends up saying that rationalizations and then ideologies are ways that we try to basically diminish or do away with our kind of fundamental contradictions. And I, I wonder what you think about that. I thought that was a really interesting way to put it. Yes, and I would I would actually include their dogma as a as mm. a as an ideology, as an aspect, maybe. Yes, as an aspect to ideology and these rationalizations. Like, but we, I think we have a. Well, Prom talks about this right, and man for himself, in the way that we, uh, because we have so much freedom, right? Um, what we try to do is that we want to give a, give it away. We want to give away our freedoms. Yes, uh, and this and is what, this is what Escape from Freedom is all about too, right? Right, yeah, the, and then, right. the reason we want to do that is because we're overwhelmed and almost frightened, right, 
by the sheer sense of, of feeling arrested by the, the multitude of what we're capable of being. And instead of embracing that and, and trying to do something with it, uh, we, we, we want security and comfort and uh, we want to feel like um, there isn't that much, uh, the ground isn't moving uh, below us, right? And, and we want yeah. stability, we want stability, we want, we want security. Um, and we're willing to trade all those things uh, for, a, for, for a, a pretty story or a, or a nice picture, right? Something that, yes. that gives us not just meaning, but also gives us purpose and it tells us what that purpose is. Mm. that's the problem like freedom is actually the responsibility right i think he talks about responsibility a lot the responsibility to find your own purpose um which isn't necessarily uh just written down for you right dude totally so so what are the ways like today you find people being confronted with their freedom being terrified by that right because there's tremendous uncertainty and then kind of giving it away. I mean, you mentioned dogma. I mean, I would say, you know, kind of toxic forms of religion are, are one clear way that it happens. What are some other ways that you see people, yeah, almost trading their freedom for that, like authoritarian certainty and control? I think, I mean, in some ways you can look at the Trump phenomena as a, yeah. as a, way, of, as a way of trading away our freedom, right? Like there's, um, there, there's high levels of, of inequality going on in, in, in the society in which we live in. Um, there's, uh, there's high inflation, right? Um, there are all these more abstract, because I think it's the abstractions that really get people, like that, that bog people down, right? And, okay. And the, say more about the, that. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, well, he, he, from would say, you know, obviously like that. I think he, uh, I don't know if it's an escape from freedom. It might be an escape from freedom or it might be in the same society where he talks about like abstractification and quantification, right? Like we're, we're creating societies that are quantifying everything. And due to that, it's abstracting the structures, right? And when the structures are too abstract that people can't understand, I mean, it kind of says like we're creating like a Frankenstein's monster where we've created a, where we're creating um, structures and, 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 uh, and mechanisms that we don't understand how they work, right? The structures and mechanisms are doing things and and we have no idea what's going on. Like we can't even mm. explain to ourselves, right? How uh, how certain aspects of the economy works. And it's this quantify, right? Quantification, abstractification um, that leads us to be, I would say here it's like, you know, let's, let's just put a little pause here and just think about like this idea of separation and alienation. Yeah. And, um, from would say that there's, you know, we come into the world alienated and, and, and separated. Like that's a part of, that's a part of existence. But then there's also like cultural alienation, right? Yes. And then there's societal alienation, which is very, very different. And I don't, he doesn't really differentiate it sometimes. And mm. you kind of get, you can, you can get a little confused because I wave separation is like a natural development that happens and isn't just separation, a thing that just goes on. And this is where I think in man for himself, you can see a little bit of the distinction because he says that man does have specific needs, right? And yes. if we are organizing societies in ways that aren't meeting the needs of man or the needs of humanity, 
um, you are going to see you are going to see you know maladaptive reactions, right? These are these yeah. are well, you call them dynamic adaptations, is what sure. you call it. Yeah. No. Oh gosh, Rudy. So man, I this this may like I'm pulling this shit out of my ass at this point, but um, I just want to see where you go with it. Like, yeah. I I find that in certain like right wing or conservative circles they will take what not that they're reading from but but they will like in like religious or they will take kind of this idea of original sin or they'll take this idea that yeah at our core we're we're, we're divided and, and we're, we're separate from things and then they'll say this is why we can't ever really make much progress or they'll just kind of leave it there and just leave it at the existential level they won't acknowledge what what Fromm calls like the historical divisions or the historical contradictions. And so they just keep it kind of at this individual level and fail to maybe highlight some of the social things that are going on. Yeah, I think it's because the, what's the best way to say this? Like it's, the story's too complex. Like I think that's the mm. easier way. Like there are too many shifting parts. There's too much complexity and people like I think people gravitate towards easy and relatable right relatable stories that make sense okay. to them from the from their own individual orientation right and when you're telling them stories that just doesn't make sense to them and you're, and you're using a lot of uh, verbiage that while maybe true doesn't necessarily re re resonate with them personally right um, I do think that that's 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 a problem specifically on the left, where we have a lot of you know a lot of verb verbiage and and, and language um, that can go over the head of just regular everyday people. And I think once you, the best way that I've captured folks and I've talked to them and they're not necessarily intellectual or any or any such way, um, and they're not interested in like these grand ideas, right. Is that when you talk about their lived experience mm. as something that's a pattern that other people are experiencing, that's when you capture them. That's when they're like, I'm intrigued. What what do you what do you what do you what are you saying? So what do you what do you think about that? Like I'm feeling the same exact way. I know exactly what you're talking about, but but they always say this, like I know. I know the feeling. I've just never been able to put it into words, right? Like that's the, yes. that's when you know you're capturing folks and you always have to, at least from my perspective, you, you always have to be able to build bridges from what they know. Like you have yeah. to relate to them, right? And I, and I do think that, for example, Fromm has that, that public language to be able to relate in a way where you're not losing people and you're not, putting yourself in camps because that's the problem like if you put yourself in a camp and you start talking about music production you start talking about class and you lose people you lose people not to say that those things aren't very real they are very real but you have to first create a connection and build trust so Ooh. that then you can start educating people right it's so fucking true man i mean i i i think this is a little bit different but i just, I just want i, I should have started with this yeah. As someone who's not a specialist, who's not a PhD, I'm not a philosopher. I mean, my training was originally like in theology and then like church related stuff. And then, you know, um, basically psychotherapy. 
I've got to say that Fromm is just so fucking readable and he's such a good writer. I mean, damn, I try to read Lacan or Hegel, some of these these great thinkers, and, and I can barely understand what they're saying. Even even Jung and Freud, who are who are easier, are still so hard to navigate. I think one of the things that appeals to me so much about him is he's a really, really good writer and and he's super clear. So if anyone's listening and wants to get into him, I want to encourage you to do so because I think you'll actually understand it. <laughs> yeah, they will. And, and what, what I've always said about From is that it, it feels like he's having a conversation with you. Yeah, I love when you first said not, that. He's, I, right? And he's not above you. Like, he's talking directly to you. Like, I don't feel he's preaching at me. He's not, yeah. Which, okay, okay. So one of the things that you said a moment ago was lived experience and and i just want to kind of maybe untangle that a little bit and let let me just throw out two things and just see wherever you go with it so i'm also kind of reading this book life itself is an art by i'm not sure how to say his name but rainer reiner funk who i think was one of his students one of his students knew him um he's edited a lot of his books i think he still runs something called the eric from society or something and maybe in germany i'm not i'm not sure okay and um he he starts out kind of the the intro to the book i think it's entitled like direct experience or direct encounter and and he says you know whatever you think of from whatever you think about his ideas my like lived experience to use your word of him was that he provided this direct encounter of like love and authenticity and presence and listening and that's what ultimately like drew him to from's thinking because he actually came to interview him to kind of disagree with him about some of his ideas but he was kind of converted over to his way of being just from that direct encounter. So that's one thing I'll throw out. The other thing I'll say is in the type of therapy that I do, I'm always telling people, I really care less about diagnoses. I don't really give a fuck about what anybody, when any other psychiatrist or therapist has said about what your struggle is. I, I really care as much as I'm able to really understand this, your lived experience. That's, that's what we're going to focus on. Where do you take it from there? Like this idea of direct encounter, lived experience. Like, how do you understand all of that stuff? Because to me, that's so important. Yeah, uh, and we had this conversation last week, but you know, I'll say it here in the podcast. I always think about it, it's like you know, we always look at uh, we have a fascination and also almost slight obsession with 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 uh, with observable things, like things we can mm. only observe so that we can quantify and then we can measure. Um, if we can't do that, then it almost feels like, you know, it's in the realm of subjectivity and a lot of scholars, when it comes to subjectivity, they kind of scoff at it. And it's like, well, it's, it's, it's really hard to, you know, to, to, to do, you know, data on. And if we can't have data and we can't measure it and we can't have really nice graphs so that we can, we can, you know, see what's going on then, you know, it's a lot harder to really be credible. Um, and I think someone like Fromm can show you that we can have profound language um, to talk about subjective experience. Um, and there is a, a language to experience. Um, and, and, and what we need to do is instead embrace complexity instead of trying mm. to simplify. I think our automatic responses to simplify 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 um and we can i would say we can we can walk and chew gum right so we can do both like i I think we can we can talk about things so that we can understand them 
but at the same time, never forget that the observable things that we're trying to explain are only just effects of subjective mm. experience, right? And what we need to look at is the actual experience or discuss the actual experiences of of human beings, right? And have a language that we can we can we can use as a tool to be able to talk about experience. Um, and from is giving us like from provides that um, that framework uh, to yes. be able to be able to talk about experience and not just talk about it, but also change experience. Right. Mm. You know, one of the things that's coming up for me that that again, I just kind of read earlier this week, it, th- th- this would be and again, I, don't, I haven't finished man for himself. So so maybe he will nuance this. But again, I, I, I think I said I, I started out reading it saying oh, I'm not an essentialist like this guy. Not only does he keep on using the word man, you know, for for like humanity, but but he seems yes. to believe that there's this kind of not fixed, but he definitely thinks that we have kind of a human nature. And and I ideologically maybe tend to be against that. But one thing he said that's kind of maybe getting me to rethink some things is he said, if we do have these fundamental needs that you keep on talking about, if we do have kind of a type of human nature that we share with everyone, then maybe part of what that means is when we're in a situation we're in a society we're in a context that's really fucking horrible and is is really unhealthy and and it's like destroying our humanity there's maybe a chance and maybe this is a statement of faith for him there's a chance that we're not going to be able to tolerate it forever right so let me let me just yeah let me let me just see if we can uh make more sense of the of what you're talking about sure um, especially with the essentialism part um kieran actually uh kieran durkin uh, who who wrote uh he wrote a book called the radical humanism of eric from you should read it whenever you okay can. i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna post something real quick yeah keep on talking i'll just because I'm, yeah. I'm gonna check that book out yeah check that book out um there's a chapter in there on anti-humanism and he actually talks about how from's understanding of essentialism is actually not a hardline essentialism, but it's 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 a basic essentialism. He's basically okay. right. It's it, it, and it's not this. You know, it's not strategic essentialism like the the you know post colonial scholars would talk about. Um, but it, it's a it's a basic essentialism that just says we have psychological needs. There's this need, for example, just one of those needs is 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 relatedness to feel mm. connected to other people. Um, that's universal. That is universal. All human that is fucking things. universal. That is universal, man. Like any any anti-essentialist can come and talk to me and tell me if human if human beings do not relate, if they do not come into contact with other human beings, there's a literal reaction that happens, a psychological reaction, which it you can see it in prisons when they put people in in isol, isolated isolated confinement, right? Dude, they totally. Say, they have, they become psychologically distraught and they start to have like traumatic effects, right? Which affects their personality. So that is universal. Relatedness Dude, is a kind of universality for sure. Totally. And, and, and I've actually mentioned this concept actually in another episode this week, but I think I've told you like the, the core psychotherapeutic theory that I kind of work out of is something called relational cultural theory. And I've actually mm-hmm. been really excited to find out that they actually would see Fromm as one of their like intellectual heroes, which was really cool to discover. Um, One of the concepts that they use to describe the greatest pain that any human, 
you know, in a therapy office is going to kind of talk about is what they call condemned isolation, which is, which is the other side of what you're saying that we have this universal need to relate, i.e., when we're not in a state of relatedness, we're going to feel this type of isolation or loneliness or separation. And that is existentially awful, right? Yes. It's, it's something yes. that I think anybody would struggle with. And it's crazy too. Uh, like uh, most effects, like the, 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 the uh, what is it? The aggregate patterns all follow the same effects, mm. right? You, you have, for example, toxic self-talk, you second guess yourself, you have less confidence you know, you start to have uh, emotional distress. Sure. Like, if, if that wasn't a, a, a yeah, like I'm literally trying to like rationalize it from an anti-foundational perspective. And like, well, how do you explain that? Like, how how does one see these these patterns? Right? These these what do you, what do you call them? Like like comprehensive patterns, a compendium of patterns sure. that we all you know most human beings tend to fall into and say that that is not a universal effect right like it's it's not even about making it universal um because obviously like you know universal tendencies aren't there's always going to be exceptions that always is going to exist yeah um, but but to say that there isn't some kind of like i was saying earlier what what you know what, what kieran talks about like a basic essentialism that exists in all human beings that we share something in common in all cultures just think about that culture itself is a universal development yes no totally and 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 from is very clear man for himself that you know even in light of these universal things these universal traits this type of like you said basic essentialism that doesn't mean that it's not going to manifest itself in a variety maybe a multiplicity of ways right, right. throughout history right. and different cultures right. Right, because what Fromm does is that he he doesn't try to uh, he doesn't try to flatten the, the the differences. He doesn't try to change the the varieties and things. He's just saying there's a there's a dialectical relationship between universality mm. and difference, right? Yes. With one with oneness and difference, or, or or being in nothing, right? Like that's there's there's a relationship there, and uh, I think the, the variety and differences that exist in the world shows you. Uh, that there is a commonality, right? There are commonalities, but of course we express that commonality in different ways. In different ways, that, yeah. And I think that's the beauty about, you know, being human. Like, and, and he shows you that, which I think is lovely. Like, that's amazing. Sure. And and I think, man, may, may, maybe you wouldn't affirm this or him, but but I'm, I'm just thinking kind of maybe for the first time, if, if we don't have that universality or a type of basic essentialism, is is what we ultimately think of love is that possible do yeah that oof, love do we do we talk about it from a from perspective or are we just like just thinking about like in an abstract way what love is like how do you I'm want not sure maybe, yeah. maybe from a Frommian perspective like I, I i think love might be connected to a type of essentialism I don't know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, love is the. I think Fromm would say it's the ultimate form of relatedness. Like that yeah. is the. Uh, what is it? The the best expression of, I think it's what he calls like like pure individuation. Like he sees it that way. To be completely individuated is to experience love, because for a person to actually 
be in love and, and it's for him it's not a passive thing it's an active thing right it takes effort it takes sacrifice it takes responsibility right it takes accountability um and it takes knowledge right like you need to know the other as much as you know yourself um and eventually like the the, the what is it the, the zenith of what love is supposed to be about is complete solidarity with all of humanity right like that mm. to him is um, the ultimate expression of love to be in a partnership with someone and not be in this like Romeo and Juliet relationship, which is you and me against the world. It's, it's you and me constantly reaffirming that we are the world. Like we reflect everything in existence, right? Like that's, that's the pure essence of love for from like, that's, Dude, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. I think, I think he would say, you know, cause from is big on negative versus positive freedom Negative freedom is, you know, freedom from like maybe these external constraints or authoritarian structures, but freedom to or positive freedom is, is the ability to actually, I'm going to put it this way. I'm not sure if this is the best way, but to kind of like own your individual freedom and to kind of utilize it in a loving way. Yes. Yes. Because freedom, freedom and love are the way they're expressed is the only difference, but the essence of what they are are the same. Yeah. And that, that has to come with like that idea of individuation, like one recognizing one separation. And yet instead of trying to deny it, embracing it and then coming together with another separated individual and looking to transform each other to create new unities. Like that's the, right. That's the point for, for from it. It's to, not to go back to what, you know, when psychoanalysis, they call the, uh, the, the proverbial womb, which is to go mm. back to, to everything when, when we were completely connected to, to everything in existence. And, and, you know, and obviously we can, we can have debates about whether the womb is actually like this perfect, uh, perfect environment where no conflict is actually going on. But at least just right. for the sake of the story, the sake of the story is that the womb is where, where, where human beings are, you know, not not separated and they're they're connected to 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 everything in existence right to the to the fountain of what it means to exist and from is basically saying well this uh, this nostalgia of wanting to go back that's a kind of maladaptive experience mm. that that we we have to basically overcome because it's um, a giving up of our freedom right it's a giving up of our freedom right it's trying to go back to something you cannot go back to anymore Sure. And the only way to and the only way to overcome that that fear is to create new transformative unities, right? Like that's mm. it's to, it's to recreate the feeling, but to experience it in different ways. Yeah. I see. There's that dialectic again between differences and 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 and, and unities, differences and, and and universals. Sure. Oh, that's 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 good. Okay, so so Rudy, maybe maybe one more kind of thread that I want us to follow before we kind of sign off. Um, you and I were talking about this, you know, we hung out last week. I just read it this morning in man for himself. He talks about the difference between rational and irrational authority. I think you may have a little bit different language, but can you go there? Cause you have some, and you have some wonderful thoughts on, yeah. you know, what, what you mean by authority, like healthy versions, unhealthy versions, maybe there's a better way to put it, but yeah. your thing around that. Cause that was so good. 
Yeah, I, I like that. I like that language a lot better, like healthy forms of authority. And then you have toxic forms of authority. Um, a, a healthy form of authority is always an authority that's that will have an end. Right. Like there mm. you can only you can only have and it's not even power over because that form of authority, that, that's a maladaptation. Right. Like that's what Fromm would say. Um, a healthy form of authority is is one where you see that same capacity in yourself, in the student, for example. Um, anyone can achieve the kind of, right, like you being an, an author of something, you, you having the gatekeeping abilities, um, that doesn't mean that you're actually gatekeeping. Like in that, in, there's a dialectical relationship in authority there that says, I am an author because the student is giving me that ability, right? The student is giving me that power. I myself do not have that power. That power is borrowed. That's a borrowed Mm. power. Um, And, and you, I I have the responsibility uh, to bring the student along, for example, and eventually know that they're going to grow up. They're going to achieve a certain kind of knowledge that I have. And then they're going to, master it and they're going to go beyond me and that's something beautiful that's 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 healthy authority healthy authority yeah. is knowing that you're going to have a student who's going to surpass you right and or they're going to be as good as you right like that's the whole point and then eventually the, the relationship ends like that authority ends and then it turns into something else right yeah that's so good you, right it, it can do anything and then you have these the toxic forms of, of authority which which tend to be more more punitive and they, t- they tend to be more more domineering and domineering forms of of that kind of relationship is to one power that, over to power over so you never want there's almost like a dependency there right mm. you depend on that person to give you that power and because you depend on it you never want to let it go so there's a, there's an aspect of healthy forms of authority already embraces that one day this relationship will end when uh, one oh, day so you good. have to let go and i feel like you know it relates back to like like parents for example you're a parent so you probably know about this eventually one day your children will not need you in the same way that they need you today and no, that's, that, that's that's right, right. And i mean and and, and at, at some level the goal is that we actually begin to relate to each other as peers you know right right so what do you th- I know it's not exactly the same, but kind of one of the things that's coming up for me as I'm thinking about this through this kind of relational cultural theory lens is one of the big concepts when it comes to the therapist and the client. I would argue in any relationship really is this idea of mutual empowerment because yes. it's, it's kind of naive to suggest that we're in these relationships with no power. It's, it's, I think it's the case that there's always some type of power some type of power dynamic that has to be negotiated that the goal through communication, through love, through, through just figuring things out through a type of conflict is getting to the place where there's a mutual empowerment. And that's not always exactly the same, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's with the goal, like you were saying that it's not going to always be lopsided. There's going to be maybe seasons where it changes, but, but both sides kind of get empowered. At at least that's what I'm really committed to. Yeah. Yeah. And and obviously like, even when you, when you're in this, you know, you're in this maybe unequal relationship. Um, there are aspects in the relationship that you're learning from oh, the other yeah. side. Right? Like if you're the authority, also you, you, you. There will be moments where the student, right, or your child, or 
in any other kind of uh, you know mentee relationship, they're going to be teaching you things about yourself that you didn't know before, right? And there there is a dialectical relationship there that exists for sure. Yeah. I don't know if this is true or apocryphal. I, I've heard it from various different sources in like the Jungian world, but some have said yes. that that one, one of the things that Carl Jung would say to his students, to people that he was teaching was, if you get to the end of like an analysis and you haven't been as transformed, if you haven't learned as much as, as your patient or as your analysis, then, then you failed. Then it hasn't really been a successful analysis. And I just... I, I take that and I communicate a version of that to my own clients when they say, man, you must be the expert. You know so much and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I'm nothing. I'm like, look, I may have some experience and some knowledge and some quote unquote expertise in the process, mm -hmm. but you are the expert of your own life. And there's things you're bringing to this experience that are really challenging me and that are causing me to think about things differently. So I want you to know I am being as transformed, hopefully, as you are. Yeah, and the, this is actually like just just to like plug from back in just for like a second. Please, just no, just no, 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 dude, dude, do there's, it. Please. There's a, there, there's a, a a beauty in recognizing the multidimensionality and the complexity of the human experience, which yeah. is yes, you might be the therapist in that moment, look like you're collected and you have it all together. But life has a way of humbling you. Oh, yeah. And I, I walk outside to my car. Right? Yeah. And you're going to have existential moments that are going to test you. And life Absolutely. is literally constantly testing you as a human being. And whenever you're in those spaces where you can shine, where, you, where you're this beacon to somebody else, all that means is that you've experienced the darkness and you've come back to me. Mm. Different, right? You've, you're transformed You've increased your capacity as a human being. That's why you can appear collected in that moment. But that, that to me, right, from my perspective, it's like, that just means that, like, man, I've been, I've been in the gutter. It's been nasty. It's been bad. Oh, and yeah. I've experienced moments where I'm about to break. So I know exactly what you're going to. And here I'm going to be in solidarity with you to not just validate you, but also let you know that there is, if you take the right orientation and, and the right mindset, right, not to say that like the mindset is everything, but right. the mindset is a factor, right? Mindset is a factor. Huge. Um, Mindset's it can, huge. It can, it can make a difference on how you go about the struggles that you experience in your individual life, right? And that's what, yeah. that's what we're saying basically is like we look collected because we've taken the beating, right? We struggled as well. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Do you think there's something too? also, again, this is a little bit of a Jungian thing, but but I think I think Fromm would kind of be behind this. The idea that at some level, maybe with like psychotherapists and I, I don't know if this would apply to a university professor, but there's a type of uh, archetype around the wounded healer where, again, any any success or any power that you have to help someone through these difficult things doesn't come from having it all figured out. It actually comes from your own history of, like you said, being able to navigate the darkness and then coming out the other side and using that lived experience, I would argue, to help someone through that process. And yeah, I, I honestly, it's, it's, it's having the, and this is hard to actually practice. It's like having the humility to know that when you're in a moment of, of power, 
someone giving you power yeah not to not to let that power get into your head because at one point in life you were exactly that person who's looking at you now with all Dude. that that you look like you have all the answers so you will be true. that person in in moments of your life for a lot of people and instead oh, yeah. of trying to and instead of trying to like uh you know the, the ego will be rough but instead of trying to bask in that you have to humble yourself and, and remind yourself like i'm gonna be here eventually soon so i need to be self-aware and respect what this person is going through just like i would want someone else to respect what i'm going through as well right yeah dude that's that's great and i think maybe the perfect place to end but this is not the end of our conversations on eric yeah. from there's just so much and god he wrote so fucking much dude yeah. like that's one of the things i'm excited yeah, we didn't, we didn't even into, get uh, we, we didn't even scratch the surface yeah we didn't, we didn't get into uh, uh what is it the uh uh from's idea of human nature for example which is oh which we got it's in man for himself too it's oh, can't wait to i got I, I, I think i'm i think i'm basically at the chapter where he's going to get deep into that so i don't mm -hmm. think that i would have had much to contribute but maybe that's that's the next conversation and i also want to get into his thoughts on religion because i think i mentioned on social media that's one of the things that even though I kind of consider myself an atheist or a non-theist, as he would put it, I, I do see myself as kind of religious in the way that he describes, which is having this, this guiding orientation toward life and then a type of devotion toward, you know, vitality and zest and, and all these good mm -hmm. things. And so unlike Freud, who really shat on religion and I think was very reductionistic, saw it as a neurosis, he, he saw it as an infantilized approach to life. I think Fromm is really critical of like authoritarian religion and dogmatic religion, but he sees a place for a type of uh, orientation that's very human, right? And 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 he wants to argue that there's a place for idealism. That we can't help but have these ideals that we live toward. I'm sure some of those can be really toxic, but at some level, maybe that's a universal aspect of who we are too. Yeah, I mean, see that that's that's where I think Fromm is much more comprehensive yes because he creates space there to to talk about uh, what is it the the things that we the things that we are and also the things that we lack mm. um, but, but not that we actually lack them it's just that there are aspects of who we are that we need to also embrace if we if we're going to embrace our virtues we also have to embrace our vices right our vices and that's yeah. And I would say, like, we could stop there, and I would say that that's the sure. preview to how he understands the the human condition and how he understands okay. human nature. Yeah, beautiful. Okay, man. Well, hey, I know we're gonna see each other this weekend. I'm looking forward to that, yeah. and uh, yeah, we'll figure out a next time to to continue to talk about from. All right, my man. Have a good one. You too.